This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Arkansas First District Representative Rick Crawford. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. America's sweetest industry creates jobs and provides a sustainably produced food ingredient. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Arkansas Congressman Rick Crawford next. America's sugar farming families and workers pride themselves on making sure Americans always have reliable access to this affordable and essential ingredient. U.S. sugar industry is a job creator and economic driver in rural and urban communities across this great nation, supporting more than 151,000 jobs and contributing more than $23 billion to the economy each year. America's sweetest industry is supported by a sugar policy that costs taxpayers nothing. Learn more about how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient food supply chain by visiting sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. This week's Open Mic guest is Arkansas Representative Rick Crawford, who was elected to a seventh term serving the 1st District last Tuesday night. Our conversation took place on Wednesday after the election, when the outcome of many House and Senate races were still being tallied and the balance of power of both chambers for the new Congress was still very much in question. So, for the sake of the discussion, we assumed the Senate would remain evenly balanced and that the House majority might shift to the GOP. Crawford does not expect a lot to be accomplished in the pending lame duck session. Well, the lame duck session, we're not going to be in for very much longer. And so, some some of the things that needed to be done were done prior to break for election. We're only going to be in for two or three weeks. And we're going to spend at least one full week, if not more, in in organizational conferences, both sides breaking apart, picking leadership, adopting rules, packages, and so on. So a lot of time is going to be spent there. I, I really I don't know what to expect in terms of the lame duck agenda per se, but my sense is that the Democrats are probably going to pro, you know do some things like like possibly a budget um, and things of that nature to 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 determine or help help have a more influential make a more influential statement going into the next congress because as as the power um passes over to the republicans they will have sort of put a last little exclamation point at the end here by enacting things that they think will carry over to the next congress and so i think that's probably what you'll see and and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's probably, if there's anything done legislatively, that would probably be what it is. Okay, here's a $64 question for you. Do you see another continuing resolution, or do you think that both sides of the aisle would be willing to uh, approve a budget for the rest of the fiscal year? Well, uh, I think there's a very good likelihood that we would see another CR, but if there's a possibility that they could do a budget for that could carry over into the next Congress, then there's also a possibility if they think they've got the votes for it and they can pull it off in the Senate that um, they might they might try to do that. You know, this is a nickel's worth of free advice, I guess. But I, my my point is, I'm not I'm not saying that they should do that. I'm saying that there's a possibility that they might. If they don't, I mean, then the situation then is it's going to be a CR. So um, those are really the two options. Either they say, here's what we're going to do: we're going to pass a budget, send it to the president, and get it done before this lame duck session expires. 
or we end up in another CR and they lay it in the lap of, of the majority in the next Congress. And either way is probably not necessarily a bad move for them politically. So it's just a question of how long they want to wield some influence over this process. And if they pass a budget, that's more enduring than a CR. Well, you've now been elected for your seventh term in Washington, so I'm going to ask you to pull out the Crawford crystal ball, if you will, and tell me what is a, a, a Republican House, again, a very narrow margin in the Senate and a Democrat in the White House, what does that spell for the president's national agenda over the next two years? Well, so his legislative agenda will effectively halt without having majority in one, at least one chamber. But even even you know, if he only had one chamber, it still makes it difficult for him to, for him to advance his legislative priorities. And so that means, guess what? We're going to have to cooperate. We're going to have to try and build consensus if we are going to advance legislation. So. What likely is is more likely to happen is that he will either a like Bill Clinton did and say, okay, I got the message. What do we have to do to work together? Or b he goes as Obama did and says, I've got a phone and I've got a pen, and he starts to take more executive action than he already has. So those are really the two scenarios. Now, what that means from from our perspective, from the legislative perspective, if, if he shows some degree of, of willingness to work with us, then that gives us an opportunity to maybe compromise on some things like, for example, a farm bill, which is critical. And, and you know, the people that are listening to this now would agree that, you know, that's something we know that's going to come up for reauthorization. That's an example of something that we need to work together to pass. If, on the other hand, he wants to take the posture of being, you know, the, the you know, heavy-handed executive then we're going to be at loggerheads and we're going to have problems for the next two years and hopefully then see a change of, of leadership in 2024. But really those are the only two options, and it, and that will determine what legislative agenda is brought about. We're still going to pass uh, legislation in the House, send it to the Senate. It just remains a question of whether or not this president will sign it, and that's entirely up to him, and he can set the tone in a way that he wants to, and then we can respond to that tone based on, on, on which direction he wants to go. And of course, the issue is going to be neither side is going to have a supermajority, uh, even to override right. a presidential veto. Absolutely. So, you know, it makes him a more integral part of the legislative process more than he already is because, obviously, he signs legislation. It doesn't just become law uh, without the president's signature. So, um, you know, that makes that veto power that much more important because we don't have the votes to override his veto. Um, so it means that, okay, well, if we're going to expect him to sign certain bills, then we're probably going to have to be a little more conciliatory with the minority and come up with something we think that he's willing to sign. So since you brought it up, do you think there can be a farm bill in 23? Oh, definitely can be. But there are some hurdles that we have to clear to make that happen, and, and you know, most of those hurdles are political in nature. And, and I think we probably will have very little change to the Farm Bill if we expect to pass a Farm Bill that can garner the support of, of a majority of, of members of the House. And why I say that is because on one side, the Republicans, you have a dynamic and, and, a, and a, a good number of folks on the Republican side that don't want to pass a farm bill, don't want to entertain a farm bill because it spends too much on nutrition and conservation and environment. 
And on the other hand, you've got the Democrats who don't want to support a farm bill because it doesn't spend enough on nutrition and conservation and environment. And so, you know, we've got to we've got to sort of find that meat in the middle and be able to peel off enough votes from either side. This is one of the the true exercises in bipartisanship, where you know we don't have enough Republicans to force feed the other side a really really conservative farm bill. And if the situation were reversed, they probably wouldn't have enough votes to force feed Republicans a really environmentally charged farm bill that was, you know, highly plussed up with nutrition spending. Again, so I really see an opportunity here to sort of maintain some continuity with the farm bill, with the programs that farmers rely on now, with sort of maintaining maintaining funding levels as close as, as, as we can to what they are, the environmental regulatory stuff, not taking, you know, huge steps to increase regulatory burdens, but at the same time, not recognizing that we're going to need some support from the other side if we're going to get this whole package passed. So, you know, you can you can look at this as well. You know, we we can make some lemonade out of these lemons if 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 we're if we're willing to work together. And and honestly, it's it's really probably a lemonade that we're used to drinking anyway. And that's the current farm bill that's working pretty well. So, you know, if we want to maintain continuity with that, I think there's a good opportunity here to do that. So um, that standpoint, yeah, I think there's a, there's definitely and, and look, Republicans, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna mark up a farm bill. We just are, and it's gonna go to the floor, and you know it'll depend on the nature of of the farm bill. My sense is that um, uh, a chairman G T Thompson will will probably uh, support a farm bill that is not much of a deviation from what is current policy. With a few couple of, a few exceptions that are probably related to the changes in the economic conditions with regard to things like, say, for example, the PLC program, where we see um, reference prices that weren't indexed in the original uh, iteration of of the PLC program, and so we're pegged to 2012 production costs, which have not kept pace with the demands on the input cost side. So production costs in 2023 are not reflected in that, so we've probably got to make some adjustments. That's an economic dictate. That's not necessarily a political concern. You've heard uh, Mr. Thompson talk about it, and he said it on this program, of being willing to take a look at perhaps shifting farm programs, ARC and PLC, over to more of a margin coverage like has been done in dairy. How would that fly with your constituents in the Arkansas First? Well, probably that would not be very welcome. I mean, if we're going to start, um, and I and I, I get that because you know we, when you see the um, the way that program has sort of, it probably works well on the dairy side. But the the thing is, we're we're kind of dealing with margins anyway, with the way that ARC and PLC are set up, that to try to adopt a a margin program, you know, a la dairy. When you think about large-scale grain operations, for example, that's probably not something that they're, they're, you're kind of an apples and oranges comparison. So I think that the PLC program in particular kind of already deals with it in that way in that we, we're looking at production costs and kind of closing the gap there um, based on, on production costs and what triggers a payment, and that's based on, on the markets. So, you know, the reference prices, um, there's, therein lies the difference, if you will, the margins 
from the cost of production versus what the reference prices are set at. So once you exceed that reference price, there's no need for any kind of a payment to go out because you've exceeded, based on the reference prices, you've exceeded that. So you wouldn't need a payment. So I think we're already sort of achieving that in a manner of speaking. Uh, it'll be interesting to, to have that conversation, but I, I just think that, you know, you, you, you look at one commodity, for example, dairy, and you find a program that works doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for other commodities. So on this program a couple of weeks ago, uh, Representative James McGovern said he would not vote for a farm bill that does not see financial support for President Biden's health, hunger, and nutrition plan going along with the conference that they held earlier this year. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, as a member of the committee, he can certainly vote any way he wants to. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I certainly don't support that position. I think that there are, um, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of funding in nutrition programs. And can, can, our, our, I think our problem with nutrition, as much as any problems with nutrition, are uh, a lot of it are inefficiencies in, in the administration of programs. A lot of it is the waste and, and what we do with wasted food, issues that may even be outside of the purview of the Ag Committee. We might even think about, uh, for example, you know, the waste associated with dates on, on packaging. And, you know, they do that. Most of those dates are based on liability issues and not food quality issues. And so that means there's an awful lot of food out there going to waste. And then the other thing is, why are we not being more creative in how we incentivize retailers to utilize, for example, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables that might otherwise go to waste that they could distribute out to um, food deserts um, and, and, you know, I know there's a cost to that, and that's why maybe we should think about tax incentives to be able to incentivize grocers to provide food and vegetables because of the increase in, in transportation costs to get out to certain areas. In a lot of places, and this is the irony of rural America, some of the most productive um, farm lands in the world are essentially food deserts because they don't have you know, the products leave the farm and they go into the marketplace and they don't come back except in the form of processed food. And so a lot of folks in rural America, and particularly those that are being economically challenged, rely on processed food that sort of deprives them of the real nutrient-rich fruits and vegetables that other consumers take for granted in their grocery stores. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really a question, I think, of efficiencies, and being creative in how we meet the needs of folks who are stuck in food deserts. Congressman, I know you also serve on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. We are dealing with low water levels on the Mississippi, mm -hmm. but we're also dealing with now a looming threat of perhaps a rail strike. So with regard to the rail situation, what needs to be done, and does government need to get involved, either the White House or the Congress? Well, so myself and Sam Graves, we introduced, or we wrote, we actually wrote a letter and we have some legislation in place should the need arise to address this issue. And my hope is that it, it won't be necessary for the Congress or the federal government to intervene and that cooler heads will prevail and we'll be able to address this issue satisfactorily. But it kind of points to the issue here of um, how other modes of transportation, we can't put all our eggs in one basket. So we have to sort of, you know, our, our supply chain is multimodal. Uh, and, you know, for those of us who live in close proximity to the Mississippi River, we understand this very, very well. 
the Mississippi River is a super highway that moves an awful lot of goods, bulk commodities of, of virtually any category you can think of. And, and um, when the river is low, as it is now, it creates a major impediment to moving, you know, on a large scale. The efficiency of barges is just is really impressive, and, and, you know, the carbon footprint, which is always a concern, particularly for environmentally inclined individuals, that's important to note about the efficiency and, and the uh, in environmental friendliness of barges. So then we go, okay, well, we're going to have to reroute those commodities to rail and truck. So we've got a looming rail strike potentially, and we've got a more than 80,000 driver deficit in the trucking space. And then we don't have policies to address either of those two things. So, you know, you really almost got a perfect storm for what could create some economic calamity if we're not able to address this fairly quickly. And so, as I said, my hope is that we'll be able to see all the parties come together and say, okay, for the sake of our economy, uh, we're going to agree to these terms. The reality is you shut down rail, you're talking about $2 billion a day type of economic hit without movement of freight rail. You know, our economy is, is really fragile right now, and we certainly can't sustain that kind of hit. Now, when you combine that with the problem that we have in the trucking industry, with which is that we don't have enough drivers, um, we had a similar dynamic here in, in, in the South when they closed the I-40 bridge over uh, Mississippi River back in May of last year. Uh, due to some structural issues, we could have seen an absolute calamity if they had not resumed barge traffic underneath the bridge, which they stopped for about six days before they finally allowed to resume. And from a farm perspective, that hit right at side dress, so we had a lot of fertilizer south of the bridge, uh, 300 barges, in fact, that weren't moving as a result, and we didn't have any options to move that freight because rail was at 120% capacity, and we've got this driver shortage. So we've got to think holistically about our supply chain and what we have to do to rely. Each mode needs to rely on the other and um, and recognize how important each one is in the big picture. And uh, we cannot afford a rail strike. We could spend uh, part of today and the rest of tomorrow talking about global issues, but I want to bring this for you knowing that you serve on the Permanent Committee on Intelligence. The conflict wears on between Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. But now Xi Jinping has gained another term in China, and the Sabres are still rattling with regard to Taiwan. Uh, a, a simple question with a lot of different rabbit holes to run down. What does the U.S. do with China? Important to us economically, but from a military standpoint, certainly something that draws attention. I think there are some things that can and, and and some things that are being done, some things that should be done a little more forcefully. That is shoring up relationships certainly with people in the Indo-PACOM region, Australia being one. We are starting to see some strategic assets move to Australia. China's not happy about it, um, but that's too bad. The Philippines is another ally that's essential, and, you know, unfortunately, um, we had some, some folks that thought they were really smart when they decided – we don't really need uh, Subic Bay and Clark Air Base anymore in the Philippines, and those were some of the most, uh, you know, valuable strategic assets we had in the region. And so we're going to have to, and we have the opportunity now with the new president in the Philippines to really um, shore up our relationship there 
and start to see more of an investment in security with partners like Philippines and Japan. Obviously, Korea is another. So we're, I'm talking about this in, in the context of military, uh, mill-to-mill relationships and, and military partnerships. But as it applies to the economic side of things, you know, China on, on virtually any front is going to continue to be belligerent. They'll be belligerent politically, economically, militarily, and otherwise. But there are, they do have some vulnerabilities. One of those is they have less than 20% of their land mass is arable. They don't have the resources to feed and clothe their 1.4 billion population. And that's manifest in their belligerence with things like the BERA, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Made in China 2025 Initiative, and their really aggressive um, acquisitions of land everywhere they can get it. What they've decided, what it appears to me, is they've decided to rely less on imports and rely more on acquiring land in foreign countries so they can grow without necessarily having to worry about import. They would essentially be you know, farming for China in places like Tanzania, Mozambique, maybe South Africa, some, uh, you know, Brazil, Argentina, and, yes, the United States, among others. And so we need to be careful about that here in the United States, that we're diligent about land purchases of foreign countries because many of these companies – uh, countries may be acquiring um, land through uh, third parties that create some strategic vulnerabilities for us. As it applies to our trade relationship with China, I think we really need to start to view China as a retail destination for American goods. Yes, they're an important market, but their supply uh, or their demand inelastic, which means American goods, for example, soybeans and corn, are going to have to go to China. They know this. They may get there through through uh, third parties. For example, Mexico, back in 2017 when the tariffs were implemented initially, uh, Mexico bought up a bunch of U.S. soybeans, and they played in that space. That's fine. I'm not necessarily as concerned about um, how our, our uh, soybeans and corn and other commodities get to China. I'm more concerned that we can sell them. And if we've got partnerships with, with countries that I mentioned, places like Australia, Philippines, India, Japan, Vietnam, we can use those as a uh, um, distributor network to move U.S. goods into China. And, with, you know, we're not making as much money because we'll be selling wholesale to, for example, wholesale to um, Vietnam and, and let them make the money on the, on the retail end of it. But I, but I still think we need to uh, revisit and rethink our global economic strategy as it applies to access to critical markets like China. Congressman Crawford, congratulations on being elected to a seventh term serving the first district in your state. Uh, we want to thank you for taking time so quickly after the election to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today you got the last word. Well, thank you so much. I enjoy these visits and uh, hope we have an opportunity to do it more frequently. You know, I'm a former farm broadcaster, so I love talking to a farm audience anytime I get the opportunity. and. And so I certainly appreciate you as a former colleague, and uh, and I certainly appreciate your audience. Our thanks to Arkansas Congressman Rick Crawford, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. America's sweetest industry creates jobs and provides a sustainably produced food ingredient. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Kelly.